Welcome to another installment of the Codcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. Healthcare is on the agenda in Washington and on Beacon Hill. My colleague Bruce Mole and I sat down to talk about it with John McDonough. He's a professor at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health and probably understands healthcare better than almost anyone in the country. That is in part because he's had a big hand in crafting some of the most important healthcare measures of the last 20 years. He was a state representative and health committee chairman on Beacon Hill when legislation was passed in the 1990s that expanded coverage for children in Massachusetts. He directed the advocacy group Healthcare for All and played an important role in the state's 2006 reform law, sometimes known as Romney Care, and was then recruited to Washington by Senator Ted Kennedy to help craft the Affordable Care Act, which drew heavily on the Massachusetts law and was passed and signed by President Obama in 2010, seven months after Kennedy's death. John McDonough, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. My first time. <laughs> Great to have you. So we are going to talk about health care, and we thought we would uh, take a bite at both what's going on uh, at the state level and then talk about the sort of craziness in Washington that's unfolding. That's the uh, word for it. <laughs> right. But let's start at the, at the state level, and you wrote a piece for us here in Commonwealth uh, uh, that went out last Sunday as our, as our weekly upload commentary piece that was talking about a proposal from the Baker administration to try to uh, uh, deal with the health care challenges here. And in particular, a lot of it has to do with the Medicaid program. So what was the problem that the Baker administration is trying to fix? And how do you, how do you think their proposal stacks up in, in doing that? So the problem is the rapid growth in the cost of the state Medicaid program called MassHealth at a rate exceeding the growth of the economy and the rest of the budget that then is putting pressure on and squeezing everything else we care about, including criminal justice, education, environment, infrastructure, you name it. Everything has to kind of make way as the size of the mass health program expands. And what you hear most frequently is, you know, mass health is now about 40% of the budget, and that's true. On the other hand, what's left out of that is only about um, 17%, 15 to 17% is the actual state tax dollar cost of it. So more than half is straight from the federal government and just goes into the economy and has lots of beneficial effects. And so when you cut mass health, um, you have to more than divide the savings in half because most of the savings go back to the federal government. So that's one of the things that makes it tricky when you go into a cost-cutting thing. On the other hand, there is this uh, recognition and determination that they have to do something. Um, The ordinary response is to uh, try to cut benefits, to cut beneficiaries, that's what happens in lots of states, do all different kinds of things to put pressure on the program. Um, The Baker administration here is proposing a set of initiatives that are somewhere in the middle that would have some uncomfortable consequences but would avoid the more onerous and controversial steps of cutting benefits or eligibility or clamping down on providers 
in terms of reducing rates to providers. So they've tried to find a middle path with some creative ways, and the whole package is interesting unto itself. And the eight elements of the package, or the, the five, depending how you count, are each interesting unto themselves too. And, I mean, when you say they're trying to avoid kind of the big knife or the taking the ax to it, I mean, they've done things like uh, they're proposing ways to uh, try to prevent uh, people who are employed from moving on to mass health. They're trying to, as you wrote about, uh, structure mass health in ways that look more like some of the commercial plans that set up tiers or create incentives for for uh, people to use uh, some, yeah. lower cost services or or higher, not more so efficient. much. Not so much um, saying you can't get into Mass Health if you have a job, because in fact, a majority of the people who are on Mass Health who are not elderly or disabled or kids actually have jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is now a program for the working poor as well as the disabled, elderly, non-working poor as well. Um, what they're saying is that we don't want you to get on mass health if you have an alternative of getting affordable coverage through your employer. Right. Lots of these people on mass health, they have jobs they work, their jobs don't over health insurance, where they offer health insurance that's more expensive than people with very low incomes can afford. So this is going back to a policy or proposing, asking the feds for permission to go back to a policy that existed prior to the Affordable Care Act between 2006 and 2013 under the Massachusetts Health Reform Law, where you couldn't get into these expanded programs if you had an offer of affordable health insurance coverage from your employer. They want to go back to that because they believe that there's been a lot of attrition from employer coverage into MassHealth, some perhaps instigated by employers, and probably a lot of it instigated by the workers themselves because chances are the financial deal they get from enrolling in mass health, chances are is significantly better than the deal they can get on their job from that kind of health insurance. Is this one of the things that people talk about when they say we need to fix the Affordable Care Act? Uh, you know, as, as opposed to throwing it out. Is this is this one of the things that they're talking about? I, I, well, it, I don't think for the most part the conversation gets down to that level of specificity on the national level. So instead we're talking about, because that's probably a subset. If, if we got to the place, if the Republicans fail in their current effort in the U.S. Senate to do their big repeal and replace, and if there is in fact a bipartisan table of things that uh, would be negotiated between Republicans and Democrats, I would not be surprised to see this is the kind of bipartisan thing that they could probably agree on. But at this point in D.C., they've got much bigger stakes and much larger fish to fry than this. And so you don't really hear that conversation much at all because they're not down at that level. They're talking about just putting a giant macro break on Medicare spending in the Republican plan and Democrats. On Medicaid, you mean? On Medicaid, I'm sorry. And, and, and Democrats are then trying to resist. And we don't get to that level of specificity, but this is the kind of thing that, in fact, could emerge where Republicans and Democrats get into a room together. They, what can we agree to? This would be something that could 
more than likely get on the agenda and be one of the things that they could walk out there and say, well, we've got a package of stuff we agree on, including some stuff that's tough on Medicaid. Um, this That issue about when you read about it in the newspaper, it's always uh, the Democrats are saying the Republicans want to cut back Medicaid and mm-hmm. reduce uh, the availability of that to millions of people mm-hmm. in the country. The Republicans... Um, don't seem very coherent in how they explain it, but the way you describe Massachusetts, it does seem that the, the program financially is sort of a runaway train, eating up not only, as you put it, the Massachusetts budget, but the federal budget as well. And I know the Republicans are concerned that it's sort of a blank check to states. They, they just keep paying money, and the states, it seems to me, figure out ways to get more federal money for Medicaid constantly. I just, where do you come down on that? That it's an it's an interesting debate about both sides seem to have a point, right? But so this is one of those Rorschach test things where you see in the diagram what you want to see, and you can create a narrative that is legitimate for whatever conclusion you want to get to. You can build your own fact case. So one of the things to keep in mind is that yes, Medicaid is an expensive program. It is the largest source of health insurance coverage in the United States right now, covering about 75 million people. So it is enormous, particularly when you think of what it was in 1965 when it was created. And its costs rise every year, and for the most part they rise faster than inflation. A lot of that in recent years has been because of the large number of people coming into the program through the Affordable Care Act. The cost of those people has been for the last three years, 100% paid by the federal government. Now, over a couple of years, it'll go down to 90% federal and 10% state. But the thing to keep in mind is that the rate of Medicaid spending on a per enrollee basis, so how much does it, how much are costs going up every year for each individual? If you compare Medicaid and the rising cost with Medicare, serving the elderly and some disabled, and employer-sponsored health insurance, commercial insurance, Medicaid is by far the cheapest and the slowest growing source of coverage. So states are incredibly sensitive to rising Medicaid costs and wanting to keep them down, even though states on average pay only 43 cents on the dollar, and some states it's like 25 cents on the dollar for the services that they get, All they focus on is the state exposure, and they are relentless in trying to figure out ways to try to keep those costs down by either making it difficult for people to enroll as much as they could, and the Obamacare, the ACA, has cut a lot of those options for states in terms of making uniform eligibility and enrollment rules. But um, there are still a lot of things states can do, and so they do it, and so Yes, it's growing, and it's growing faster than the consumer price index and faster in some cases than the medical consumer price index, which is always higher. Um, And the fear is that if you bring it down to what Republicans are talking about in terms of the consumer price index as the measure of growth, then you're putting it on an unrealistic diet where states will be forced to make changes that will constrict the availability and access to services for everybody on the program. The thing to understand about Medicaid, or one of the many core things to understand, is that elderly people, 
and, and disabled people. Sometimes they're called the dual eligibles on Medicare and Medicaid. They're only about 25% of the total enrollment, and they represent more than two-thirds of the cost. So all of those big, the families, the kids, the poor working adults, they are about three-quarters of the enrollees in the program and less than a third of the costs. And so it's impossible when you want to get in and make cuts to the program to just go after the low-cost population. You've got to get at the expensive population, which is the people in nursing homes, the people who are severely disabled on ventilators, getting all kinds of services. So it's, it's damnably complicated in terms of, mm-hmm. first of all, understanding it, and then secondly, figuring out what are the levers in terms of trying to make real improvement. Well, we're, we're kind of finding ourselves marching sort of, it seems, inevitably here into the national conversation. So mm-hmm. let's just take that on uh, and, and talk a little bit about what's going on in Washington. And, and uh, I, I mean, I keep thinking, and I've seen a lot of people make, the, make uh, the comparison that this is sort of the ultimate story of the dog that caught the car, right? The dog has been chasing it and barking at it forever, and the Republicans now have it, uh, and, uh, and they seem a little bit uh, unsure of exactly uh, what to do with it now. Yeah, it's also said it's a great example of be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. I don't think that Republicans ever imagined over the past year that they would be in this position where they would actually control the White House and the House and the Senate, and so they felt very free over the past seven years to just smash the ACA, Obamacare, and never feel like they would be held accountable to actually have to deliver on their rhetoric. And they have been a minority party for the past eight years. And as we see now, in terms of their difficulties, even with unitary control of Washington coming together and being able to figure out a budget, which it looks increasingly like they may not be able to do, they're finding it very hard to be a governing party. And they've defined themselves by their opposition and, and, and never really had to reconcile the differences. It was just the default. We oppose it. We're going to get rid of it. They never wanted to get rid of all of Obamacare. It was never on their play card, but those involve parts of the law that most people have no understanding. But there's big parts of the law, huge parts of the law, that are not touched by either the Senate or the House versions. For example, a massive effort to try to reform the delivery of medical care, to move away from fee-for-service financing of health care and toward what's most often called value-based payments, where you pay providers based upon the quality, efficiency, and effectiveness of what they deliver. Big agenda that's been roiling and, and consuming the healthcare delivery system, hospitals, physicians, home health, everybody for the past eight years, not touched, not touched. It's Title III of the ACA, and not, not a, a, a hair on the head of Title III is touched by either version, and other titles as well, a big title, Title VII, allowing so-called biosimilar drugs. Uh, a kind of a generic form of biopharmaceutical drugs into the U.S. market. That was Title VII of the ACA, not touched. So, so this notion that they're going to repeal and replace the whole thing was a transparent fabrication from the beginning. What they're really trying to do, what they're really attempting to do, and this is why it's in trouble, is 
the Affordable Care Act was an attempt to try to reform health care and expand coverage financed by new taxes on wealthy families and powerful health care interests, as well as future cuts in Medicare spending um, to hospitals and others. The Republican plans in the House and the Senate are really attempts to try to repeal the tax increases in the Affordable Care Act on wealthy families and powerful interests such as drug companies, insurance companies, medical device makers, financed by really draconian cuts, mostly in Medicaid. And so it's kind of the two initiatives are the reverse image of each other. But the, the current agenda in D.C. is primarily a tax cut agenda. And that's what's driving this. And that's why when people say, why can't Democrats and Republicans just get in a room and sit down? It's because the fundamental divide, political divide in D.C., exemplified by this, but exemplified by many, many other issues, is about tax policy. It's not about health care policy. It's about tax policy. If there weren't those taxes on the table that the Republican base is demanding to be repealed, this would not be the big high-profile issue it is. So, um, and yet, uh, there's a, there, I, I take it there is a problem here, that, you know, the cost of, of Medicaid for both states and the federal government. Um, isn't there, isn't there, isn't there a... I, it was called, you can call it a problem. Yes. Um, can you call it a crisis? It's not a crisis right now. In fact, uh, the rate of, if you, if you want to go after where costs are rising the greatest, you would be focusing on the employer health insurance system, which is not really a target at all in this conversation. You would be having a big process on what are we going to do about exploding pharmaceutical costs. Mm-hmm. You'd be focusing on the manifestations that are actually driving the increase in spending. About half of the spending in terms of rising premiums over the past three to four years has been completely focused on the cost of prescription drugs, which now represents more than 20% of employer premiums, the fastest rising uncontrollable piece. We'll see what the future trend is. There's some sense that it may be starting to moderate, but you never know the about that most of the increase in 2014, which was the largest that we'd seen in over a decade, related to just one drug, the Savaldi drug that was the cure for hepatitis C. So, so if you want to focus on rising costs, you go where the problem is. You don't go where the problem isn't. For example, hospital costs, hospital spending has been far more restrained over the past eight years than we have seen. And it's One of the many parts of the ACA that hasn't been recognized has been in the first half of this decade, we saw the slowest growth in Medicare spending increases, in Medicaid, and also in private commercial insurance than we had seen in the prior 50 years. We've never seen the stability of spending, and yet there is virtually no recognition of that except for health economists and people who pay close attention to that data. There's the, there, there are issues around rising deductibles and other kinds of things, but that's not to be confused with the overall system growth. There is, an, there is a 
big bump in 2014, 15, and 16 because of the opening of enrollment into the ACA expansion all over the country, that 20 million people who got coverage, and even more so because of the increase in prescription drugs. But those are the sources. And so if you really want to go after rising costs, you don't do it the way they're trying to do it now. And, and if you're really trying to lower costs and lower the federal deficit, you don't end up giving massive hundreds of billions of dollars in tax cuts to the wealthiest Americans. I mean, the Center for Budget and Policy Priority says that if you did the, if you, if you rescinded the tax increases on wealthy families, the new Medicare payroll tax and the investment tax, just two pieces in the ACA, the richest 400 families in the United States would get an annual average tax cut of $7 million. Oh, my God. <laughs> so this is, so, so, so it, the only way you can see what's going on in D.C. right now and have it make sense is understand this is about yeah. cutting taxes on wealthy people and powerful interests like drug, device, and, uh, and insurance companies. And that's where it starts. And then everything else flows from there. I have a sort of nuts and bolts question. Mm-hmm. I want to, going back to the state, you said that, I, I could be misremembering the number, but the Medicaid split mm-hmm. uh, between the state and federal government, we pay 17%, you said? No. Uh, so, 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 of the, so the, the Baker administration, other people, Mass Taxpayers Foundation say Medicaid spending is over 40% of the state budget. That is true. Um, however, most of that 40% represent federal dollars coming into the state. And the state dollar, if you just look at what are we paying out of the state treasury, state tax dollars, state revenues for Medicaid, it is 17% of overall state spending. Of overall state spending. But That's it is right. a 50-50 split, the state and federal? Well, it's on, on paper it's a 50-50 split, but when you add in all of the special waivers and other kinds of things that the state gets and some of the extra money. And, and that includes also the children's health insurance program, which gets reimbursed. Um, it, ends up at a, it ends up at a higher rate. So what we've got right now is roughly a 26 to 17% split Okay. In terms, of, in terms of the overall state spending. Uh, so maybe sort of two, two last things. One is, are you surprised by the uh, sort of standoff, I guess, within the Republican caucus, or was this completely uh, predictable that they would not be able to get the votes now, at least in the Senate at this point, for this proposal that they have on the on the table? If you've been watching carefully, as I, I spent way too much time watching this over the past eight years, um, it's clear that there were significant differences between the different branches, the far right and the more moderate version of Republicans, whether or not that would have led to the kind of conflagration that we've seen ha- w- was not certain. So yes, it's a surprise. It wasn't, it wasn't a surprise in late March when the House effort appeared to collapse and die. It was a surprise when they were able to pull it back together and pull it over the finish line with only two votes to spare. And so it's also not surprising that you've got this kind of dilemma in the Senate right now, particularly because the Senate institutionally and senators individually are far more respectful of states and governors because they represent the whole state, not just a piece of the state. 
And so the notion, as the Times, New York Times had yesterday, a story about the influence of the, of the governors, Republican and Democrat, in terms of influence in the debate, it's not surprising that they had a lot more heft and clout in the Senate than they had in the House. So it's, it's, it's a complex portrait of pieces that come together, but never underestimate, particularly when it comes to the Senate, the importance of governors and state legislatures, because senators really care about that far more than individual members. And 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 we're sort of running short on time, but I wanted to ask you just sort of a, a broad sort of politics question, and that is um, that in some ways the Affordable Care Act was an effort to sort of move forward on the goal of of broader or you know something approaching universal coverage or at least access. But it was doing it within the structure that we've had in place in this country of, you know, sort of a mix of private health care and government supported. In the, sort of at the same time that we're seeing this fight in Washington, we're seeing a push by the Trump administration and Republicans to try to unwind that and sort of, you know, go back to a more market-based system. We've suddenly started hearing louder some of the voices saying we should be moving and just sort of saying, enough of this, let's just go to single payer. And then I guess, you know, most notably, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, in an interview with the Wall Street Journal, who had been, you know, sort of careful in her comments about that subject in years past, is suddenly now saying, I think we need to go for that. Uh, this needs to be put right on the table for the 2018 election. Uh, and, and it just sort of seems to sort of portend this enormous showdown with, you know, widely divergent views of where we should go in healthcare. I mean, what do you what do you what do you make of of some like Warren sort of putting single payer into the into the argument now? Well, it's an extremely popular message with the democratic base. It has been for a while and I think that the voices calling for it are escalating. Um, I understand the logic of it and the principle and if I were in charge of the country, which you can be pleased will never be the case. <laughs> um, yeah, that might be one of the earliest things I would do. Um, I, at the same time, am deeply concerned that it is a monumental distraction from going after what's actually achievable. When I talk to single-payer people, I ask them, what are, what, what are the most important dates in the modern history of advocating for single-payer? And usually they don't know, and so I'll just <laughs> tell you. 1994, binding single-payer initiative in California went down 73 to 27%. 2002, Oregon, binding single-payer initiative went down 77 to 23%. And last November in Colorado, single-payer went down 20% yes, 80% no. Also, we have 2014 when Vermont had been working for about four years to create their own legislatively created single-payer plan, totally determined, governor, House, and Senate, threw in the towel at the end of 2014. They'd priced it out, they'd figured it, and they decided that it would have been cataclysmic and probably suicidal for the Democratic Party to do it. And so I just am concerned that people get so focused on that, and it's chasing a big white whale, and it is a big white whale, because it's bigger than the size of the whole government, the healthcare system, in a state and nationally. 
I worry that that's a distraction from focusing on the ways that we can actually make major, significant, important, and, and, and appreciated improvements in the system working on what we got right now. Um, a lot of people think there's only two ways to go. You either got what the crazy system that we have, some people call it a non-system, or Canada. And the truth is that there's all different ways to get to universal coverage and effective cost control, and most of them are not single-payer. I mean, they are. Australia has a great single-payer system. Germany has a great multi-payer system. Switzerland, the Netherlands, there's all different kinds of models. And this notion that it's single-payer or bust, and we can't get to the kind of system we want without single-payer, I, I think that's um, a mistaken judgment. And uh, the Commonwealth Fund in New York, you can go on their website, they do apples-to-apples comparisons of healthcare systems based on quality, access, efficiency, public health, all different kinds of things. Their last report came out in 2013. They looked at 11 countries, the United States, Canada, and 11 other advanced economies. Uh, the number 11, the worst out of the 11, 11th out of 11, United States. The second worst, number 10 out of 11, Canada. I tell a lot of my students who wake up every morning and say a prayer to the shrine of the perpetual single payer. <laughs> say, just remember, Canada only looks good in comparison to the United States. You've got lots of other choices, lots of, and so there's lots of ways to do it. And I just worry that there's this, you know, once Democrats start feeling their oats and feeling their hubris, there's almost kind of a politically suicidal impulse that takes over that is just, and, and I just urge people to look at 2000, 16, 14, 2, and 1994 and examine that experience and see what happened and then explain how are we going to get a different outcome. But I know I'm going to piss off a lot of people by saying that, but that's how I see it. Well, we, lo we like people to come on and, and uh, tell, it, tell it like this. And I mean, lastly, I don't know if you can say it, sum it up, where, where will we be a year from now in this whole uh, debate? So I'd say just, just so one of my colleagues at, at the School of Public Health, Michael Reich in Global Health, he works on health reform all over the globe, not in the United States, every place else. He says to me, constantly reminds me, he says, John, you have to understand the acid test, the moment of truth for any national health reform comes when the people who installed the reform, who created it, who got all the applause lines and all the hoorays from the crowd, leaves and a new administration takes over. And that becomes the moment of truth where you really decide what's real, what's lasting, what's going to stay, and what was ephemeral for however popular it may have been. And so that is the moment that we're going through here right now. And it's Congress, but it's really broader. It's American society is deciding right now what do we really care about, what's most important to preserve, and what is not as important. And that's the sorting process. I don't know. I can't. I if I, I I'm on the bubble. Will Mitch McConnell be able to pull it together? I would be really foolhardy to say, oh, he can't do it. And I think some people who say, oh yeah, he's going to come through and do it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't bet either way right now. I think this is very much on the bubble. And the next, uh, it's really they've got till the end of September to get something done to the president's desk because on September 30th, the reconciliation order that defines this whole process expires. And this whole effort, if they don't get it done by September 30th, it turns into a pumpkin and it's all over. But until then, the people who are concerned and worried and want to weigh in have to be vigilant and continue to pay attention. 
Great. Well, this has been uh, hugely illuminating, and uh, I want to thank you, John McDonough of the Harvard Chan School of Public Health, for coming to talk to us uh, on the podcast. I appreciate it a lot, John. Okay. Thank you. And for my colleague, uh, Bruce Moll, I'm Michael Jonas, and you have been listening to another installment of the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. We're here every week. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. (laughs) 